Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity, for this time of worship, for this time of proclamation of your glory and your holiness. And Lord, we are so thankful to be at a church that teaches the Bible. And we're so thankful we have a pastor who loves your word. So we pray for Pastor Skip as he is in travel. We pray for safety, for a a few days of recuperation, Lord. And then he'll be back in the saddle. So bless him, Lord. And Lord, for this service tonight, we pray that you would guide and direct, that your word would go forward and you would penetrate lives and hearts by your spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Well, what started off as an exciting and hopeful day ended as one of the saddest in my life. The day was January 24th, the year 2000. And it was on that particular day, my wife called with the words, It's time. Ladies, you know what that means. And for those guys who don't have children yet... It means she's ready to go into labor. But what made this moment even more uh, thrilling is the fact that we were expecting twins. We had names picked out. We had the room ready. Obviously, our other two kids, it was exciting. But this was that much more exciting. Twins. Wow, how exciting. So my wife came to pick me up, believe it or not. And... Ladies, before you think I'm, you know, not a nice guy, it's because I worked across the street from the hospital. So she came to pick me up, and together we went to the hospital. And for the most part, we were expecting a fairly easy delivery. You know, twins are never as easy as a single child, but we were expecting something that was fairly normal. All the tests came back positive, and the children looked good. Well, for precautionary sake, the doctor rolled her into the larger room in the event that they have to do a C-section or something of that nature. And of course, I'm up there by my wife's head, Melanie, kind of coaching her along through the process. And obviously, she, she's in labor and, and things start turning a little bit odd on us. And Melanie's doing her job, but obviously, I'm a lot more astute to what's going on in this little room. And I noticed the doctor seeming to get a little nervous. And I kind of noticed he looks up at some nurses and he kind of gives this nod of what I found out meant get some help. So before too long, a couple more doctors, actually three more doctors and a few more nurses came in. And this room that was once peaceful and serene turned into be a little more hectic. And I finally just had to ask the doctor, I said, well, what's going on? And, and he said, well, he's trying to give birth. He goes, well, you know, one of the kids is, is breached. He's turned around and for twins, this could be a serious thing. I'm going to try to get him out naturally, but you never know. I need to call people in and such. Well, Melanie, if you know my wife, she's a, she's a trooper and she, she gives birth to the first child and his name is Riley. And they take this child over to a, a table and one of the doctors start working on him. And the second child named Kaylin, he's born, uh, he's the one that was born breech, legs, legs first. And they take him over to another table and they start working on him. 
And I start talking to Melanie. Boy, you did a great job. I think everything looks good. And I walk over to the first table, which happens to be Kaylin's table. I said, well, how does he look? He goes, well, he's not breathing very well. Um, obviously, uh, premature babies, and, and these, these two were premature. They said they usually do have breathing problems. We're going to put him on um, some breathing apparatus and send him to ICU. And I go, okay, that's great. And I walk over to the other uh, table, which was Riley's table. And I said, doctor, you know, how, how's, how's he looking? And, and I just remembered as if it was yesterday. He looks me right in the eye. And he goes, he doesn't look very well. I'm all, what, what do you mean? You know, uh, he goes, well, I can't tell you everything until we do further tests. I could just tell you he's not breathing well. And he pointed out some other things, some features. And I thought, boy, that's kind of odd. I, I didn't expect this. And so they rush him off to ICU. I go back to Melanie and say, well, they're taking him to ICU. We'll know more a little bit later. They clean Melanie up and she gets into her regular room. And then the overseeing doctor comes in and he talks to us and he says, well, I've kind of got good news and bad news. And I said, well, what's going on? And he said, well, the good news is um, your second child, the one who came out breach. Incidentally, he goes, he's doing great. He has some lung problems. He's probably going to be need, uh, hooked up for a while. But he goes, it's your, your first child that we really need to talk about. And I said, well, what, what's going on? He said, well, we ran some tests on him and um, things aren't looking good for him. And I said, oh, okay. He said, well, he has what's called Potter's syndrome. And you may be sitting out there going, I don't know what Potter's syndrome was. I didn't know either. Potter's syndrome means they were born without kidneys. And he said, "Um, and I just want to be honest with you. I've never seen a child survive with Potter's syndrome. And then he went on to tell us other things that was wrong with Riley. He had low lung development. He had low heart rate. There was a host of things wrong with him. But he looked us squarely in the eye. And he said, you have a decision to make tonight. You have to decide if you're going to keep your child plugged up to life support or you're going to pull life support. And we need to know. Obviously, as parents, we were beside ourselves. We didn't know what to do. We called in our pastor, who was a Calvary Chapel pastor. We called in family members and we talked and we prayed and we went through this over in our heads with each other. And after a period of time, the message was pretty clear that we needed to to pull the plug and let the Lord do what the Lord was going to do. Incidentally, the doctor, the overseeing doctor, happened to be a Christian as well. So we really felt we were getting great advice. So I remember when we went into the ICU room and the nurse unplugged little Riley, walked him over, put him in my arms, and I sat with him while the breathing stopped and he went on to be with the Lord. And you can imagine the grief and the heartache and the tears and the pain and ultimately the questions that were going in our head. Why, Lord? Why did you allow Riley to leave us? Why did this occur? Why in your providence, in your will, did this happen? And ultimately, I don't know the reason, the bigger picture reason why the Lord allowed Riley to leave us. But I do know that God, through His Word, has given us distinct promises regarding His will and this term called providence. 
And that's what we're going to tackle tonight. We're going to look at providence and God's will. And I've entitled this message, Providence in the Midst of Pain. And if you do have your Bible, I encourage you to turn it to Romans 8, verse 28, that we'll be tackling in a few moments. But before we get to this scripture text, let me tell you what providence means. Providence, the word, actually is taken from the Latin. The prefix pro means before or in front of. The suffix verde means to see. So in the most basic definition of providence, it means to see before. So if, let's say this aisle right here represents time. And if we look at providence in its most basic sense, I look down this corridor of time and I see things as they are happening. I know beforehand what is going to occur. But let me say the biblical definition of providence goes beyond just knowing something before it occurs. Biblical providence actually has two components to it. There are two aspects to biblical providence. The first is what we would call general providence, which is known as God's general care and concern over all of creation. God is governing everything that is in a general sense. The air we breathe, the rotation of the earth around the sun. You get the idea. This is general providence. But the Bible doesn't stop with general providence. The Bible talks specifically about special or specific providence. And this is important to know because this is the scripture text we're going to be looking at. Specific or special providence is God's unique care over His creation and over His people. Meaning, not only is God just generally looking over things, He is looking after you and me in a very specific fashion. Think of an analogy as this, as a gardener. As a general gardener, I may go out and water my grass and water things and mow the lawn every now and then. That's general care, general governance of my lawn. But a specific gardener is the person who gets down on his hands and knees and prunes off dead leaves and cuts back plants that need to be cut back and fertilizes and helps grow and mold and shape the plants and the flowers and the grass. And God, through Scripture, tells us that God does both general providence and specific providence. And what we're going to look at this evening is what is called specific providence. And it is one of the most beautiful of all Scripture texts. I encourage you to memorize it. I encourage you to internalize it or at least underline it in your Bible. And it says this, Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. So the first main word we see there is the word we. And who is that word referring to? Well, it's referring to us as believers. So what that very word tells us is this Bible verse is referring to specific or special providence. God's care over you and I 
as believers. And so the promise that Paul, who wrote this book of Romans, is telling us is directed towards us. We, we Christians. It specifically is referring to us. But what is it that we are doing? Look at the next word. We know. And this word in the original language is ido. And it means to be aware, to perceive, or to be sure. So we, as Christians, know. We're aware of something. We perceive. We internalize it. We, we grasp it. And how do we know it? Well, obviously, if you were to read before and after in Romans, we know it through the Spirit working in and through us. But we Christians know something. And what is it that we know? What is it that Paul tells us that we know? Look at the next word. All things. And look at that word all really quick. The word all in the original language is pas. And it means all. It means every, any, whosoever or whatsoever. What it does not mean is some things or almost all things or some of the time. It is all encompassing and it means all things. All things. So we know all things. That word, pas. And then notice next. And this is where it really gets beautiful. We know all things work together. And that word work together in the original language is actually one word. Sunegro. And sunegro is the idea of cooperation. And let me throw this word out at you. Confluence. Confluence. Sunegro means cooperation and confluence. Let me explain what confluence means. The prefix for confluence means with, and fluence means to flow together. So it's this idea that all these different things in life are flowing together in a unified whole. Analogy for us to really think about, especially since we could internalize it being in the mountain area, is think of all the different rivers and streams coming out of the various mountains in New Mexico. They're all coming from different places, from different spots. And they're all flowing down into larger rivers and then even larger. And then, of course, we know the largest in New Mexico is the Rio Grande. Ultimately, they flow down into the Rio Grande, go to the Gulf of Mexico, even to a larger body. That is the idea of confluence. All these little inlets and streams working together to unify for a larger purpose. That's what this word sunegro or work together means. But it even gets better. Look at the next word. We know all things work together for good. And that word in the original is agathos. And it means profit or well-being. So not only is God working all these little aspects together in our lives, but He's working all these together for good. The ultimate purpose The ultimate aim for your life and my life, if you are a believer, is for good. And that is a promise I think all of us need to take home and resonate with us tonight. God is working for good for you and for me. And I know some of you may not feel like it. Maybe some of you are having health problems. Maybe some of you are having financial problems or marital problems. But... The point 
of this passage is that even with all those different rivers of your life, all those different streams that are flowing through your experience and your day-to-day interaction, God is still working those together, the good, the bad, and the ugly, together for good. God is working these things together for good. Now the question always rises, who's He working these things together for? Is it just generally for everyone? No, as I pointed out at the beginning, it's specific to us as believers because look what Paul says next. We know all things work together for good. Then what? To those who love God, to those who are the called. So who does God working all this thing together for good? For us as believers. In a very vernacular base way, He's got our back. He's watching over us. He's caring for us. That gardener image, he's pruning, he's molding, he's shaping, he's making sure we're fed. He's making sure we're cared for. God is making sure things are working together for good. And I love that word called because in the original language it's kletos and it means appointed or invited. Isn't that beautiful? Those that are called, those that have been invited, I could just think of Jesus. Come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Those who are invited by the Lord, He has promised to give you that rest. And here He's promising to work things together for good in your life. But then notice, Paul ends this verse by saying, according to His purpose. And that word purpose there is protheus, and it means setting forth, or God's will, God's plan of setting things in order, or conducting them in such a fashion that His will is being accomplished in all of our lives as Christians. It's a beautiful thought. I like to think of God as a great composer, and we're all the little different notes he has to work together on his great staff of life and he'll pick you and he'll place you there and place us there. And then the end is this beautiful symphonic music that resonates throughout all the universe of God's harmonious interaction of working through your life and through my life for good, for something that is beautiful. So some of you are going, wow, this is a pretty powerful verse for specific or special providence. But can you give me any other examples, real concrete examples in the Bible where this is played out? Because you don't know what I'm going through, Brian. I'm going through a lot in my life. Is there anything specific you could point me to? And the the answer is yes. The Bible is full of God working specifically in and through people, even in hard times. And of course, the two that come to the top of my head, the first is Joseph. And you know the story in Joseph, Genesis 37 through 50. Joseph is loved by his father, Jacob. Jacob wants to bestow blessing upon him. His brothers get jealous. They take him. And what do they do? They sell him into slavery. Joseph goes to Egypt. He's separated from his family. His parents think he's dead. But while in slavery, the Lord gifts him with An opportunity to what? To start interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh takes notice of him and Joseph starts to rise in the ranks to the point where he becomes one of Pharaoh's right-hand men, 
Well, you know this story. A famine occurs in the Middle East. The brothers have to go and find help. And where do they go? They go to Egypt. And there, I think it's around verse 47 or so, Joseph sees them, but they don't see Joseph. And you could just think, what's going through Joseph's mind? What's going through his mind? But then, in verse uh, chapter 50 of Genesis, we get the climax of this story, where Joseph says this, But as for you, Joseph talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. So Joseph's looking at his brother and say, you know, you meant evil. You meant to do harm. You meant to go against what God has done. But God, through His providence, through His hand, through His working, meant it together for good. Brought it together for His Good purposes. So that's Joseph. And then, of course, another example, concrete example, is Moses. You know the story of Moses. The book of Exodus is largely about Moses, from chapters 2 to chapter 40. And Moses begins his life by essentially his mother abandoning him. Not that she wanted to, but she had to. She puts him in a reed boat. He floats down. The maidens of Pharaoh's daughter finds him. They bring him up. And then he lives a pretty posh life. He has all the great education, all the great food, all the great money. But you know the story. Later on, as an adult, he becomes angry and he murders a man. And he has to flee and he wanders through the wilderness for years and years as basically a wanted man, as a murderer. But then what does God do? God calls Moses, uses Moses to deliver the Hebrew people. And not only that uses Moses to bring down the Ten Commandments and ultimately write the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the books of Moses or the Torah. Now, with either Joseph or Moses, if I were to see their life at specific times and push pause, I could say, whoa, that's pretty bad. Where's God in that situation? Where's God in Joseph's life while he's being sold into slavery and his family thinking he's dead? Where's God in that? Or where's God in Moses' life while he kills a man and he's wandering as a, a man away from his home, away from what he knew? Where's God in all that? But here's the thing we need to understand when we look at providence and we look at God's will. God is not seeing it as you and I see it. Think of it like this. Think of life as a parade. And you and I, all 700 of us or whatever, we determine we're going to build a big float and we're all going to sit on that float and we're going to go through this parade together. And as we go down the street, we look over to the left and we look over to the right and we could experience things that they are occurring to us in our time frame. We could maybe see a little bit ahead of us and we could turn around and see a little bit. But for the most part, what we're experiencing in our float, in this parade, is what is around us. But that's not how God sees. Think of God as the people up in the blimp who not just sees what's around them generally, but he could see the beginning of the parade and know what's occurring. He could see the middle of the parade and know what's happening. And he could see the ending. But 
even more specifically with God's providence and will, it's not that God is just some distant God going, hmm, I see the beginning, middle, and end. Let's say in our float that we've created, we get a flat tire. Specific providence will tell us that God either himself will come down and help and restore and get involved, or he'll send someone. You know, in the case of a guy flying the blimp, hey, I notice uh, float number 432 is broken down on Rose Street. Send someone there to fix it. Send someone there to get involved with it. But the point being is God's perspective is much greater than ours. We only see what's happening around us. Moses was probably only seeing that he killed a man and he's wandering. Joseph was only seeing that he was in slavery. But God saw the ending. And the ending was good. The ending was good. Invariably though, it always happens that when you're talking about providence and you're talking about God's will, someone will always look you square in the eye and you know what's going to come. You know what's happening. Well, why does God allow evil? If God knows the beginning, middle, and end, and God is intimately involved, why does God allow it? And then they, sometimes they'll even get mean. You know, if they know that we lost a child, well, why did God allow your child to die? And then they'll get really big. Well, why did God allow 9-11? Or the tsunami that happened years ago? Or the flood here in uh, Louisiana? And they'll start throwing all these things. Why does God allow it? And it's a question of evil. And that is something that all Christians do have to contend with when discussing God's will. Why does God allow these things to happen? And let me tell you up front, that there isn't really just an easy stock answer. I believe every circumstance, every situation requires its own attention, its own looking at, its own answer. But generally, and I believe scripturally we have the basis for it, I think there's two reasons why God does allow things to happen. One, it's the problem of sin. But it's also... The issue of free will. God doesn't want to take away your free will. He doesn't want to make you into a puppet. He wants you to interact and live and being and make decisions and choices on your own. So a combination of free will and the combination of sin can create some really dastardly problems. But let me explain it in a more theological term. When you're discussing someone who may question why God would allow something, bring it down to two points. And you say this. Biblically, what we learn in the Bible is there are two types of wills of God. There's His sovereign will, and there's His permissive will. The sovereign will is that which cannot be changed. There's nothing you or I can do. We can't pray hard enough. We can't beg long enough that will change God's sovereign will. Let me give you a case example. The Bible clearly tells us that Jesus Christ will return. There's nothing you or I could do to go, well, Lord, you know, we need to talk because I'm not sure if it's a good idea. Not sure if that one's a good idea. And the Lord, you know, let me think about that. No, no, no. That's His sovereign will. It will come to pass. Nothing we could do to thwart His sovereign will. Yet, on the other hand, over here, 
we have God's permissive will. And this is where you could explain to someone who would say, well, why does God allow evil? Or explain even to yourself why God is allowing me to go through pain or suffering. Because ultimately, in permissive will, God has set the standard, but He allows us to break His permissive will. Classic example. God gave Moses, as we talked about, the Ten Commandments, did He not? And in those Ten Commandments are are precepts and principles that God says, I want you to live by. So, in a different terminology, it is my will that you live by these Ten Commandments. But, the question is, does God allow us to break those Ten Commandments? How many of you, you don't have to show your hands, I'll just raise them. But how many of you have broken one of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, yeah. Notice my hand's been up now for about 30 seconds or so. But the, the, the point is, we've broken that. Though it was God's will that we abide by these, He's allowed us to break them. That's His permissive will. So when we're dealing with this problem of evil, and we're dealing with God's providence, and we're trying to come to terms of why God allows it, we have to almost go over here and say, well, God in His permissive will has allowed it for whatever reason. He knows. But then we come over here to God's sovereign will and say, but for us, God's people, those who are the call, those who have been invited, all things are going to work together for good. And that will not change. That's a beautiful thought. That should bring you joy this evening. The fact that though He's allowing these things in His permissive will to be broken, the reality is, in His sovereign will, He is working them together for good. All these trials and tribulations we go through in our life as believers are not for ill effect. They're for no reason. They are for a reason. They're for a reason that maybe only God knows, but the promise remains that they are for good. He's working them together for good. And if this doesn't hit home for you, let me give you an analogy to think through. Maybe those of you who like to be more visual need an analogy. Many of you are familiar with cathedrals. Many of you have been to Europe or cathedrals throughout the world. And you've seen these gorgeous buildings. Flying buttress ceilings. Stained glass windows. Beautiful architecture. Beautiful statues, sculpture. To many... Cathedrals represent the highest form of architecture. And that cathedral was placed there to worship the Lord and to edify God's people. Cathedrals are grand and they're beautiful. I was privileged to graduate in England from a cathedral, Canterbury Cathedral in southern England, Kent. And I just remember walking into this thing for for graduation just going, wow. What a privilege, what an honor it is to be in such a beautiful place for my graduation. And most cathedrals were built late Middle Ages through what we call the Age of Enlightenment 1700s. But now fast forward in time a little bit. World War I and World War II. What happened to some of these cathedrals? 
bombs blew them up. Fires were ignited. They were converted from places of worship to places of war. In many cases, hospitals in other cases. But they were drastically transformed. And these bombs devastated some cathedrals so badly, some of them had to be destroyed. Others, however, were rebuilt. You're going, okay, where are you going with this story, Brian? Well, here's where I'm going with it. That this earth, you and I, all of creation, was created very similarly to how we view cathedrals. God, when He fashioned the world and He made you and I in all creation, He said, it is good. And I have a purpose and a plan for all humanity, for all creation. And this plan is to worship me and to glorify and to be in fellowship. But then what happened? The bombs of sin began to affect creation. Started with Adam and Eve. Moved out from there. And pretty soon this beautiful place the Lord had made began to become devastated, full of sin, full of destruction, full of disharmonious actions. So, during this time of the destroyed cathedral that you see on the screens there, what did the people of Europe do? Did they just go, huh? Let's just leave it like that. Sometimes they were so destroyed they had to. They had to tear them down. But other times they said, let's go back to the original plans, what the architect had in mind when he was creating this. So they went back to the best of their ability and got pictures and blueprints and plans of what this building used to be like and began to restore it and renovate it and build it back up to what it was. And some of the cathedrals that were destroyed during World War I and II are still standing today because they've been restored. Now, take that same concept over to humanity. Things have been awfully destroyed here on planet Earth. So what do we do? We're all looking at each other and as human beings we have a tendency to want to fight and shoot each other and bicker Then we want to find solutions. So what did the Lord do as the great architect? He came down and not uh, just threw blueprints down but He came down through His only Son with the blueprints and said, I will begin the restoration process. I being Jesus. So for me, and I think the larger question you need to keep in the back of your mind when someone looks you in the eye and says, so why does God allow evil? Obviously you could talk about sovereign will and permissive will and all these other great concepts. But let me challenge you to not just make it be a slugfest, an intellectual slugfest, but rather turn it around to God's solution for sin, for pain, for suffering, 
and ultimately for death. God's solution as the original architect, as the one who created the cathedral of we call earth, was that it was to be good. And He brought His only begotten Son to restore one brick at a time, one life at a time, that beautiful cathedral we call the kingdom of God. You and I, if you are a Christian here tonight, are testament, are a testimony to the fact that the Lord is risen and working and living and alive today because He is restoring the cathedral to the point that when He returns, a new heaven and a new earth. God is in the business of restoring of making a new creation, just like they did in Europe, having to restore the old cathedrals, these places of worship. Jesus Christ is restoring us to a right relationship with God. God has provided the answer for us. God has provided the means for salvation. God is in the business of building His kingdom. And we're part of it. But the challenge is, when he's building this kingdom, he looks at each one of us, and he looks at me and he says, I need you to help build this kingdom. I need you to proclaim the good news. I need you to honor me. I need you to do as I've called. It's a beautiful beautiful thought that God uses us. That God's purpose, that God's will involves you and I. And even when we slip up, and even when we fall, and even when we make mistakes, and even when we're going through pain, and even when we're going through suffering, we have that promise that cannot be changed. I've got your back. Ultimately, It's all for good. My will will be accomplished through your life as a Christian. But Lord, you don't know what I've done this week. Oh, yes, I do. Lord, you don't know what happened to me last month. I mean, oh, I know. But you're still wanting to use me? Yeah. Because you're on that float only seeing the left and the right and a little bit before you, but I see the big picture. I see where I'm going to lead you to, and I see how you're going to end. Wow, Lord. Thanks so much. Thanks for that reminder. And sometimes it takes... You could clap, sure. Sometimes it takes that reminder. Sometimes it takes us to be rock bottom to understand that God's in control and that He loves you. He loves you with a love so deep, so magnificent that you can't even begin to put your brain around His love for you. Several years back, the Lord taught me this truth in a very specific fashion. I was a principal at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. I worked with Pastor Chuck Smith. I I also did his books. And I hosted a radio program with him and I did a TV show with him. Pastor Chuck and I 
uh, worked hand in hand, and it was a, it was a great privilege to to work with him in such a fashion. But for a while at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, I was the principal for a two-year period as they were looking for a new one. And a girl by the name of Christina Bowers came to our school as a fifth grader, 10 years old. And she was a girl like most girls. She liked softball. She loved puppies. She loved her family. She liked to ride in her dad's old cars. He collected these neat old cars. She was just a sweet, neat kid. But I remember the day that her mother walked into my office, Celeste. She said, Brian, can we pray? And I said, well, what's going on, Celeste? She said, well, Christina had a real severe seizure and we had to take her to the doctor and they did some tests and we're waiting for the test. Can we pray? And I said, sure, Celeste, let's pray. So I prayed and Lord, your will be done. We don't know what's going on, but we want you to be glorified through this situation. And I looked at Celeste and I said, Celeste, you need to keep me informed with what's going on with Christina. Well, it was only a few days later that Celeste came back, this time with tears in her eyes. She said, Brian, we got the test back. And I said, well, what's going on, Celeste? She said, Christina has brain cancer. And not only that, Brian, it's a rare form of of brain cancer. There's only a handful of kids on record who have this type of brain cancer. So the doctors are really stumped as to what to do. So I said, oh, Celeste, we need to pray. So we pray. And it was at that point I started my journey with Christina Bowers. I would make it a point to go visit her, to encourage her. I remember times where we would throw baseballs in the hall And I would joke around with her and she would joke around with me. And as she got into this chemotherapy, it was really kind of a trial the doctors were using on her. See, because they didn't have a lot of examples to know how much chemotherapy to give her. So their reasoning kind of went like this. And I'm not blaming the doctors here, but their reasoning was, well, we gave this child X amount of chemotherapy and she lived a year. So let's go ahead and increase the dose for... Christina, and maybe she'll live longer. So she started this very regimented, harsh chemotherapy treatment. And the chemotherapy practically destroyed her. It got to the point where any bit of moisture on her body, boils would come up. And they would start oozing over in pus. And so... I would go and visit little Christina Bowers and she would have boils in her mouth, down her throat, even into her stomach area. Her body functions were not working properly. It was a horrific time. But I would come in there and I would always encourage her, Christina, you're going to make it. It's going to be okay. Hang in there, girl. And I remember one particular time I went to visit And Celeste met me at the door and she kind of had one of those what I call Celeste Bauer looks now, but it was kind of a half daze not knowing what to say. And I said, well, what's going on, Celeste? She goes, well, I've got got good news and I've got bad news. And I said, well, give me the bad news first. And she said, well, her boils are really bad, Brian, so when you go in there, it's not going to be a pretty sight. And it's really tough for me as a mom to 
to deal with this. And I said, I, I understand, Celeste. I said, but what's the good news? And she beamed. She smiled. She said, she's able to talk today, Brian. And I said, that's great, Celeste. What did she say? She said, Mom, thank you for bringing me into this world. And Celeste said it. and She goes, I could barely make it out. But she said, thank you for bringing me into this world. And it was at that point my whole world got transferred. That this 10-year-old girl with pus in her throat and down her mouth and in all this situation, could see a bigger picture than what I, as a grown adult, with my own kids, could see. It was this little 10-year-old girl lying half dead on a hospital bed that started to teach me this great truth of what Paul penned. That God is working together for good all things to those who are the called according to His purpose. She understood that there's something greater than just her sitting there sick on a bed. She understood that life was precious. She understood her life was a gift from God. And she wanted to bless her mother in the midst of this. And you can imagine what I did when Celeste told me that I cried. Kind of like I'm almost doing right now. Some of you are going, big baby. But it still brings back memories for me. And then, of all things, after the chemotherapy stopped, she, she actually got better. They released her from the hospital and she was able to go home on stents. And she was able to throw the first pitch out for the girls' softball team. And she was able to, to show up for the soccer game for the varsity girls and be the mascot. And they rallied around her and everything else. And it was just grand until the cancer came back. And they put her back in the hospital. And they started the chemotherapy again, even more aggressively. And then on May 24th, Sunday morning, I got a phone call from the church saying, Brian, you need to get over to the hospital really quick. Christina's not doing well. I jumped in my car and I rushed down to the hospital there in Santa Ana. And I'm not kidding you. The moment I walked in that door, she died. And her mother and her father were besides themselves. They started to cry. And I'm starting to counsel mom and dad. And I'm looking at precious Christina, dead. No hair. You know, film. Because the chemotherapy weakened her so much. She was a mess. And I'm trying to counsel. And the only thing I knew how to do was cry. I sobbed. I couldn't control myself. I I got my Bible out and I'm trying to turn it to Psalm 23 and and to do what we would call last rites. and, and, And I was able to do it, but I was doing it while I was bawling. And then more people came. And people, family members and other people from the school, teachers. And we sat there and we prayed and we talked. 
And then I was given one of the greatest blessings imaginable. Celeste and Ted, the dad, said, we have so many people coming. Brian, we can't be here as they put her in a body bag. Would you do us the honor of staying with her until she's put in a body bag and taken to the morgue? And I said, Celeste, Ted, it'd be my pleasure. So they ask everyone else to leave, and there I am sitting with Christina Bowers as they're cleaning her head, taking away the scabs, unplugging her nose and unplugging the IVs, starting to to get her prepared for the bag to bring her to the morgue. And then thoughts started to come to my head. God, why? Why? It was looking so hopeful. Why? And then thoughts of little Riley in my arms started to come. I've been through this, Lord. Why again? But then the Lord showed himself strong. Because when they got to her hands, they lifted her first hand up. And there painted on her fingernails was, I heart God. And then they picked up the other one. J-E-S-U-S, Jesus. There, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, God was with her. In the midst of death, God was with her. Because she loved the Lord. Jesus' promise to never forsake her, to never leave her alone. And it was a reminder to me, the doubting Thomas always, Lord, where are you? Why? Because she loves me. I've sent Jesus. She's in my arms, Brian. She's in my hands. And it was at that moment that I began to grasp through this 10-year-old girl, like I did so many years before, through the death of my own child, that God's purposes are greater than my own. That He's working for good in Christina's life, in Riley's life, in your life, in whatever situation, whatever predicament you're in, He is there to those who love God, to those who are the called, and that Jesus is the answer. So as they cleaned off her hand and I looked at those painted fingernails, I started to cry. And as they took her body and placed it in the bag and zipped it up, I followed her along to the morgue. Not so sad as I was still sad, but in my heart, praising the Lord because He was with her. And His promises, His will to work all things together for good was accomplished. And even though I can't put my mind around it, I could trust in His Word that all things work together for good to those who are the called 
to those who love him according to his purpose. She loved the Lord and I knew she was in his hands so I could rejoice. And let me tell you tonight, you could rejoice. Each one of you has your own burdens, your own pain, your own suffering, your own predicaments, your own situations that you're facing. But I've got news from the Lord for you tonight. I am with you. I have worked all things together for good. And though you can't see it, and though you may not understand, my message for you is loud and clear. I am working for good for you. This is a message of hope. It's a message that we can stand firm upon and thank God that we serve a risen Lord who has promised so many great and grand things for each of us. So for those of you tonight whose marriages may be on the brink, God has an answer for you. It's found in Jesus. And it's found in the promise that I'm working all things together for good. Those of you who are facing serious health problems, there's an answer for you. His name is Jesus. And His promise is I'm working all things together for good. Those of you with financial problems or serious family problems, there's an answer. His name is Jesus and His promise is, remains firm. I work all things together for good. And what a joy it is to serve a Lord who has nothing but love and goodness for His people. We can celebrate. We can partake in that love by loving Him back with our whole heart, our mind, our soul. Thanking God for what He has accomplished through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this scripture passage, Romans 8.28. We thank you so much for its promise. It's a promise that will not be changed. It's in accordance with your sovereign will. We thank you so much, Lord, that you love us, that you love us so much that you've come to restore us, to rebuild through your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would be glorified in and through our lives, that we would give you the due honor, the due praise. And, Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who needs to hear this, I'm working all things together for good. Let that resonate in their hearts, in their lives. Let this be the truth that they walk away with. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.